welcome to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. I'm your host, Sevi Watmo. Tempest will supercharge innovation and expertise, breathing life into British engineering and skills. Recent research conducted by PwC confirms that Team Tempest partners and their supply chains for UK combat air activities alone could support around 62,000 jobs per year and contribute in the region of £100 billion to the UK economy between 2021 and 2050. In the final episode of Season 1 of Future Horizons, we discuss the ongoing commitment for the programme in the UK, as well as the collaboration between the programme's international partners. Here to tell us more about Tempest's exciting steps onto the international stage are Mark Hamilton, Managing Director, Electronics UK, Leonardo, Air Commodore Johnny Morton, UK Programme Director, Future Combat Air System, UK MOD, and Trevor Taylor, Professorial Research Fellow in Defence Management at the Royal United Services Institute. So in July, the Ministry of Defence announced a 250 million contract with the Team Tempest partners to fund the new uh, phase of the development of the technology. Johnny, how important is this new contract in driving forward the next stage of the programme as both a national and an international endeavour? The 250 million pound investment announced in July is part is an initial investment in the FCAS acquisition programme and is part of the already announced £2 billion investment that the government announced earlier in the year in February uh, over the next four years. It reflects a national investment in developing uh, on the activity that the the technology initiative has completed over the last two to three years uh, and in new concepting activity uh, which will take place over the next three to four years alongside our international partners. Uh, It's significant because it lays the foundation not only for uh, the digital nature of the acquisition program, which is new to defence, but also the transformation approach that we are trying to achieve alongside our international partners and alongside industry uh, and government. Whilst it reflects uh, a focus on UK activity for the next 18 months or so, uh, it enables a fully international program planned from about the end of 2022. The foundation uh, that we put in place now is critical in enabling the building blocks, not only for the transformational approach to the programme, but also that digital uh, approach that will allow us to do things at 50% faster uh, and at a significantly uh, cheaper price to the taxpayer. Uh, The aim is to deliver a capability from 2035. Uh, So this is a key starting block for the programme. Mark, could you tell us a bit more about why Tempest is such a catalyst for transformation? Yeah, thanks, Xavier. Uh, I think Johnny is right that you know the the value itself is is both significant in the contract. I think is also hugely uh, symbolic. Um, it does provide us with you know a representation, a long term commitment from UK MOD, and also allows industry uh, more assurance around uh, sort of long term um, planning. Um, well, the contract itself concentrates on, on concept and assessment. The framework and the, the fundamental objective, they demand a commitment from all the stakeholders to transform how we deliver a programme of uh, this significance. It's not business as usual. It does require a fundamentally different design, a different approach rather to design, develop, integration, test, production, all the various and uh, critical elements of the, the programme um, itself. And I think also it's important to remember that, that Tempest is a system. 
Now, the concept and assessment phase will allow us to define much more precisely what that means and what it involves. It's not a stovepipe traditional uh, arrangement between you know all the various stakeholders. It's only going to be successful and it can only be delivered if it is considered as an enterprise uh, a relationship and given an enterprise approach between the industrial partners and also the MOD. Trevor, from Mark's description there, it really could become quite an iconic programme and it sounds like it could really enhance the reputation of the UK to deliver on high-tech, challenging projects, couldn't it? It's absolutely central to the mission of like the UK's image as a high-tech country. I think the money itself is, a, is a, an, as people have said, an, a key enabler of, an, of continuing progress, but also a firm indicator of the UK's continuing commitment. I hope and I believe that it also reflects satisfaction with what's happened so far despite COVID in terms of individual advances and the relationships and the behaviours that are being demonstrated by all the groups involved. So it's an absolutely, uh, yes, it, it has the potential to be a, a hugely iconic project. And, you know, we've seen that the UK has already signed a memorandum of understanding uh, to work with Sweden and Italy. And although uh, challenging, Johnny, what do you think are some of the considerable benefits all three countries could draw from this participation in terms of capability, skills base, prosperity and international standing? Well, I suppose the first thing I'd point out is that the, the Combat Air Strategy in action 2018 clearly stated that the programme was international by design. But what I would also follow that up with is that it wasn't uh, international for international sake. Uh, and the international partners we have today uh, within the programme all provide benefits uh, that are key to delivering a successful programme by 2035. So, I mean, if you just look at the common goals of Sweden, Italy, and, and we can talk about Japan later on, uh, you know, we're all interested in achieving a sovereign freedom of action uh, as well as our own ability to f uh, our freedom of modification for the programme, such that we can develop and grow the programme ourselves. Uh, Italy and Sweden offer both industrial benefit, technology, uh, technological skills, uh, but Sweden in particular probably offers uh, an opportunity in terms of transformational programmes, and we've seen that with the recent uh, production of Gripen E inside Sweden. So I think it is clear to uh, us in the UK that one, it's a two-way partnership with our international partners, two, we have common goals, uh, and three, uh, we, are, we are very much uh, looking to transform not only our military capability but our own industries as well. Uh, Mark, do you think there's a real advantage to the fact that a lot of employees at Leonardo have already got extensive experience of working very closely with Sweden and Italy and that it's a chance to really prove that right from the beginning, Tempest was always intended to be an international programme? Uh, undoubtedly. Uh, so, you know, as you rightly uh, mentioned, we, we do already have a degree of experience in, in international collaboration. Um, our parent company is Italian. Uh, we lead both the, the Euroradar and the Eurodas consortium for Typhoon. Um, and also we deliver radar and, and IFF systems to, to Gripen E uh, for Saab. Um, and also we partner with many different international companies to, to, to deliver and, and integrate uh, equipment. However, I do feel that this programme is undoubtedly going to be on a, a different scale and dynamic and it's likely to span a few generations of both uh, people and, and also technology. 
Um, as Johnny rightly says, it will provide each nation uh, you know, a degree of sovereign capability for many, many years to come. Um, I would also suggest that being part of a programme such as this with an intelligent customer base you know, in UK, Italy and Sweden also provides a, a significant degree of, of credibility for any of those companies that are, that are involved in this programme. And Trevor, you do extensive uh, research into international defence. Tempest can really be enhanced by this collaboration, can't it? I think it's central. The international dimension is central, but it's also very helpful, as the other speakers have mentioned. Uh, the UK has already got extensive experience of working collaboratively with Sweden and Italy. The, um, <clears throat> these countries are, are interested in the same kinds of games that we are, uh, such as operational sovereignty, employment, but also learning a huge amount about uh, the cutting edge of, of digitized uh, manufacturing and development. But I think the previous experience we have done is, is going to be very helpful. And of course, uh, it's not just Leonardo um, that's important, but also other companies have had good experience of working and contributing to the Gripen series. Sweden, of course, brings expertise in producing a uh, an aircraft for fairly small numbers and then being able to develop it further and internationally on the basis of a national market, which I think is a really um, inspiring experience that we can take on board. There'll be enormous amount of focus on the programme over the next five years. And Mark, uh, what would you say will be the key determining factors to Tempest's success on an international stage? Yeah, I mean, first it- there's no doubt it, it will be a, a tough program. It will be a tough program uh, to deliver, and you know, in a collaborative program such as this always has uh, unique demands. Um, we need to align requirements, national objectives, industrial competency, commitment to transform. These are just a few topics, um, Zevi, that we you know we could um, list many, many more, and none of which will be resolved uh, overnight. Um, however, we have seen in recent times these points can be accommodated and, and overcome. UK and Italy have a, a long history of collaboration on both tornado and typhoon. Um, indeed, both these nations have a similar view of the capability route map for typhoon, which will provide you know, more common ground for collaboration. And also, don't forget, both will be F-35 uh, users as well. Um, and there had been a comment there mentioned about Sweden in particular, and I do also find the, the competence of Sweden in combat air is quite remarkable. You're a nation with the size and resource of Sweden, I always feel punches well above its weight and has a long and prestigious history in combat air and has also had success in the, the international marketplace. So I think success won't be determined just by one individual factor, Zevi. I think it'll be a combination of many different things. And, and Johnny, you have worked in on an international level uh, in combat air, um, and you have uh, worked in in very very high profile and important programs. What are the things you'll be looking out for from point of view of an end user? So, from an end user perspective, I mean, clearly we're we're really interested in the capability because you know there's there's a there's a reason why we're doing future combat air system, and that's because Typhoon starts to leave service for the UK in 2035. That's a common goal with Italy. Uh, And so uh, maintaining those common goals of both capability, uh, affordability through cost, uh, and a timeline in terms of replacing Typhoon are absolutely critical for delivering this program. Uh, And 
to date, it's, it's clear from both Sweden and Italy uh, that they hold those common goals. Uh, and maintaining that line for the next 10, 15 years as we bring it into service will be uh, paramount for the success of the programme. And Trevor, the, the level of integration we're seeing in Tempest between industry and uh, the end user is unsurpassed. Uh, why is this such an advantage in terms of people building the technology shoulder to shoulder so that the person that's going to be using it has a chance to inform the forward path of the tech? Well, a military requirement really uh, <coughs> reflects two things. One are the threats and challenges that need to be addressed. And the other is what technology and industry can make available. And having this approach means that both sides are talking openly and frankly to each other about the, the art of the desirable and the art of the possible at the same time. Obviously, the program is very ambitious, but uh, I think this is much more the way to go than, if you like, the alternative model where the military sit in a relative cocoon and work up their requirements and then hope that they can get some industrial partner to promise to deliver it at some point in the future. This is a much more sensible way of reaching a common view about what's possible and, and for the money and in the time available. And I think it's a very optimistic move forward. One of the fascinating things that you learn when you read into the Tempest program is that it's got this amazing ability to be flexible and to adapt. And I'm imagining, Trevor, that uh, this lends itself very well to international collaboration because um, every nation will offer its own perspective for the development of the technology. And I, I guess it's very important that they see their stamp of their technology uh, pulled through in Tempest. Well, I think that every every country that's in itself far has got technology to offer and insights and expertise to offer. But I think also for some, <clears throat> for all the countries, the uh, the digital ambition that's been referred to is is uh, new ground, and uh, we obviously it, it's going to uh, involve I hope a, a lot of sharing uh, by the different partners about what they're learning. I the openness of the system is something that's central to the to the digital nature of it but I think that what we were looking for in the first place is looking for that core that that fundamental thing onto which other things can be added and making sure that that core is adaptable but this is um, this is early days yet I think we're in the exploration phase uh, which is going to go on for, for yet quite a few more years yet until we, we get to more specific and Mark, uh, Italy recently announced uh, 2 billion euros of commitment to Tempest, and they are very important technological partners in Tempest, aren't they? Indeed. I mean, I think everybody welcomes that specific uh, announcement, um, Zaidi, but for me, you know, it's not just the, the merit in uh, technology. I think that, you know, in an international programme, in an international footing, it isn't just technology, it's the experience, it's the culture. It's the approach, methodologies, ideals, values. Um, there are many different uh, contributors, I think, to an international program uh, of this sort of size and magnitude. And I don't think we should try to, to normalise these uh, in any way because I do believe the program would be much poorer uh, for it. I think it's about the art of thinking independently together. I think that's what's going to be important for Tempest. Johnny, how do you think teams can set up atmospheres that encourage healthy debate so that there is a sense that everyone's getting a chance to put their own um, input into the programme? 
So, so I think that that's the challenge we have today, and clearly on the back of uh, the continuing COVID nineteen situation, uh, is one that's you know been there for at least eighteen months for us as we've tried to negotiate with and have conversations with Sweden and Italy at the right classification. I think what we've learned certainly in the last uh, four or five months when we've been able to get together face to face, not only uh, with Italy and Sweden, but as three countries together in the same room, uh, we have discovered that actually building those relationships face to face and then taking them into the virtual environment uh, has enabled us to make significant progress over the last uh, se several months or so. So uh, it's critical that we have a core at the centre of the programme that is just not just government, it's government and industry together, as mentioned, because that, that's pretty uh, critical for uh, the, the programme itself. Uh, but maintaining a really open dialogue between three countries uh, is proving successful at the moment and will be uh, paramount for the future. Uh, and Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and Japanese Defence Minister Nobuo Kishi recently spoke about accelerating discussions between the UK and Japan on potential collaboration on the future combat air system. Johnny, this sounds like a really exciting new development. How do you expect this partnership to grow in the future? Well, I suppose the, the big thing to ask ourselves is what's the benefit, not only the benefit for the UK, but benefit for Japan, and then broader international benefits as well. So uh, we are quite excited with the the conversation we're having with Japan at the moment, uh, and that will provide benefits not only to the UK in terms of some of the technology that Japan have, but vice versa for Japan. And it also brings our two programs closer together as well, uh, and some of the challenges that we'll have to overcome for an engine collaboration are exactly the same as if we were using other system collaborations uh, between Japan and the main FCAS program. So uh, this is this is step one, if you like, of a relationship with Japan, which could, in theory, uh, open up significant developments for the future. Uh, but I'd refer to my first comment, is, is understanding what the benefit is, both for the FCAS programme and for the Japanese programme, is still at the forefront of our mind to make sure that actually uh, it is worth doing business. And Mark, um, it sounds from initial discussions with Japan that there might be ex exciting avenues to, to explore in terms of propulsion technologies uh, for engines. Yeah, um, I think you're, you're right, Zaidi, but you know, what Johnny um, has mentioned uh, quite clearly there is we, we do obviously have to assess the, the various benefits between you know, both the, the, the programmes and you know, we as a company, we have had experience uh, dealing with, with Japan, you know, going back certainly to mid-1980s when we provided AW101s, 139s, I think also 109s into Japan. And at the moment, we're also collaborating on, on radar and, and IFF systems with Japanese industry. You know, Japan does have an extremely competent industrial base. Um, they've had a requirement for a next-generation combat air system. And as you mentioned right at the beginning, we do have a shared strategic objective in the, the region. So that would suggest uh, real potential. But you know, in the programme, I think it is part of our role to define and describe more precisely what that would look like, what it would involve, clearly in concert with Japanese counterparts. But from an electronics perspective, you could certainly see the potential. Trevor, do you see any potential uh, step changes in technology emerging from these kinds of collaborations when at first glance it's quite different uh, approaches to technology, but actually when you bring them together, exciting things could happen? 
Well, Japan could be a, a, both a very valuable partner, and I think Japan itself could gain significantly. And uh, we, we're just really at the very early stages because Japan, Japan has not really collaborated before of exploring uh, collaboration in a, in a defense collaboration in a range of fields. I think we have to recognize that um, Japan, you know, historically has depended very heavily on the United States and that there are powerful U.S. industrial and political interests that would not welcome uh, Japan sort of moving too far away from, from, from the U.S. So I think that here uh, the U.K. and government and industry are sensibly adopting a, a low-key approach, playing a long game, and looking essentially for subsystem opportunities, as people have said, in terms of working with Japan. I think that the uh, Japanese wish to reduce its explicit dependence on the U.S. is a, is a long-term trend. But uh, I think with Japan, we have to be ready to be patient. As people have said, there are real technological opportunities, and obviously the Japanese have got a lot of interesting technology that they might want to bring to the party. But it's, we, we don't have experience of working with Japan in the same way that, the Swede, that we have with the Swedes and, and the Italians, and we have to recognise that. And finally, do you think, Johnny, there's any chance that Tempest might become every bit as iconic as the Spitfire in the public imagination? Uh, it's clear that uh, Tempest and the Future Combat Air System uh, is an absolute national endeavour uh, and that uh, we're not talking about uh, a capability that's going to come in in 2035 and, and be around for 5, 10, 15 years. We're talking about a capability that is coming into service from 2035, uh, will be designed to be sparingly developed out for the next 40, 50 years, uh, will replace Typhoon, uh, and more importantly, I suppose, uh, probably reflects uh, the first combat air program that the UK and its partners have, have carried out that reflects both a digital approach to an acquisition program, but also a transformational approach to both government and industries. So yes, I, th I think the short answer is hopefully it will replace sp the Spitfire, if you like, as an iconic combat air platform. Uh, but if we've got some way to go, we have some challenges. Uh, but I'm confident that we've got the right partners, we've got the right motivations, uh, and I'm looking forward to the journey ahead. Transformation underpins the Tempest programme, challenging ways of working, approaches to collaboration and driving innovation across the aerospace industry. Studies have repeatedly confirmed that the best innovation is produced by the most diverse and inclusive workforces. So Tempest partners are prioritising the transformation of their working cultures to keep pace with the need to create an environment that nurtures inclusivity. People with very different thought processes, perspectives and backgrounds need to come together to innovate. Today's generation Tempest will become tomorrow's workforce and they'll have an expectation that they'll work in an environment that welcomes difference, diversity and creativity. The British government's integrated review published in March stated that a key dimension of maintaining Britain's place at the leading edge of science and technology will be attracting the world's best and brightest innovators. So how do we bring together today's generation of engineers with those who are just starting out in industry? And how can they feel empowered to embark on those sensitive yet vital conversations that will break down barriers and lead to the type of close collaboration that will be so central to Britain's future prosperity? Here to explore the answers to those questions are Chifeli Nyoku, 
electrical engineer at Arup and university events lead at AFB UK, and Dr. Mark McBride Wright, founder and managing director, Equal Engineers. Mark, it's clear that a highly diverse and inclusive working environment is needed to produce the best innovation to allow British industry to achieve its global aspirations. In your opinion, what kind of transformation still needs to happen in industry to attract and retain more diverse candidates? So thanks, Evie. We, we are getting better at recognising that diversity and inclusion is important for our future, but we need to get better at educating our existing workforce on why we are pushing for more diversity in our industry. We need to get our current engineers to self-reflect on their own differences and connect with what their own diversity story is. And we need to get better at asking data of people so that when we look at trends over time and track the impact of the intervention programmes that we've started, we can actually see the difference that they're, they're starting to make. Because at present, we do not have a comprehensive data set of who our engineers are in the United Kingdom of uh, covering all elements of um, demographic diversity. Chi, a lot of work that you do is in increasing awareness of the breadth of talent uh, that is available. For you, what is the most pressing need in terms of transforming uh, the landscape of job opportunities and and to attract more diversity? Um, I think the most pressing need is, for me, is um, around changing the perceptions that we have about engineering, about entering into engineering, first of all, and then, you know, having a successful and thriving career as an engineer. we are doing, I would like to say that we are doing a lot of work with, you know, encouraging people and getting out there via like STEM outreaches or um, dedicated university events. But I still believe that we need to look into, you know, encouraging people um, into getting into engineering. A good example is uh, the apprenticeship scheme. So whenever we present, whenever we go out uh, as an organization and we talk to students, when you we we tend to forget how important uh, apprenticeships are as a strong group to get into engineering most people tend to focus on you know going into the university getting a degree and we don't it's often overlooked that most of the people that we are talking to um might be from varying backgrounds maybe from middle or low class uh, earning families and when we it'd be good to like paint um that route or that approach as something that is beneficial to all it's something that is attainable for everyone and she can you go into a bit more detail about the work that you're doing with afb uk to work with people one-to-one and make them feel empowered to find their professional voice yes so at afb uk we are um taking a multi-generational approach, if I can say that. So we have started, first of all, with our Making Engineering Hot and Next Generation programs by reaching out to primary and like college students, getting them excited about engineering. Because we found that, that um, by university, if we do start talking to students around that university age, a lot of their like ideas and career perceptions are quite uh, strongly formed so by going you know 
back into primary schools and getting children to meet engineers that look like them or have similar stories with them, we can, you know, get that like generation tempest like piece around attracting them and seeing that engineering is a viable career for them. And then we move into like the next uh, phase, which is the work that I do personally, which is engaging so like the universities and encouraging students currently studying engineering um, into getting into you know the, their engineering careers, we have found out that through research that you would see a large number of students you know, getting into the engineering program, completing the engineering program, but then there's a drop, a large drop in numbers of students that eventually you know get into their their early careers phase. So at AFBE, we provide them with uh, mentoring opportunities, uh, mentoring sessions, um, employability events where we organise work interviews for the students, um, review their CVs and just provide them with the additional support that maybe they don't uh, get from their career services in the universities or just by or don't get from the environment that they find themselves in. Absolutely. And Mark, you do a lot of work in helping companies to become more aware of inclusivity and to build environments that are more inclusive. From what you've observed so far, what do you feel are the key barriers to inclusion that you're coming across again and again? Well, a, a key barrier that I see come up time and time again is the understanding of the majority to understand the need for diversity and inclusion. And when I say the majority, I mean the composition of the workforce that are 89% white, straight men. Um, and this is why I always say it's important to understand your own diversity story first, so is that we get engagement points of empathy for our work in diversity and inclusion. It took a slightly different tack a few years ago, um, shifting the focus of equal engineers from looking at discrete underrepresented groups to instead one looking at masculinity in engineering, trying to really get to the bottom of why some of the work that we're doing in diversity and inclusion is having shallow impact. You know, the Women's Engineering Society has been around for over 100 years now, yet we're still only at 14% women in engineering. So we need to do a lot more in understanding why are we shifting at such a glacial pace in terms of activating the majority to become allies for the work that we're doing. Absolutely. And you've both been giving us insights into people's real lived experiences as employees, their private lived experience. And in June, some of the world's largest companies switched to rainbow logos. And there have been concerns that some organisations are approaching it a bit like a branding exercise rather than a real year round commitment to inclusivity. And Mark, do you share these concerns? Do you think that some companies behind the doors are actually grappling with what it really means to be an ally? Um, so I have mixed views on that in that um, I've myself been that trying to be that agent of change from within to get a multinational corporate to really take LGBT plus inclusion um, on the mantle and the organization wasn't ready for it. It was too much too soon. So much so that's why I set up a, 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 a cross-industry network called Interengineering that would be with me independent of who I was employed with. And that's how I've um, sort of advocated for LGBT plus inclusion across engineering. 
Um, so behind every rainbow logo that you might be seeing out there, visibly on LinkedIn and, and you know, pictures of pride flags at sites up and down the country, there will have been a lot of red tape internally to get either the marketing team to agree to that, to get the board of directors, board of advisors to sanction it, to get the, a pride flag flowing at a site that historically has maybe never ever flown it and it's only ever been the flag for Armed Forces Day, Reserves Day that, that they fly. So um, there is a risk with rainbow washing, with, you know, um, Tarzan swinging throughout the year from initiative to initiative. But I'd say that in general about any diversity strategy, when a strategy is structured around the January to December, people awareness raising days, weeks and months, and you're only covering whatever is au fait that month, if it's not all tied back to something comprehensive with metrics that you're tracking and what we're seeing externally is something that's just, you know, you visibly showcasing it, but behind the scenes, there is all the stuff going on that comes with really shifting the needle on inclusion. If, if it is just that branding and marketing exercise with no um, sort of justification behind it internally, then yes, that is a huge risk because it lulls potential applicants into a false sense of security that they perceive your brand, your organization to be more inclusive than it actually is. But then you need both. You know, you need to be projecting what you want to be whilst internally working to change the mechanics of the culture because you want to attract that diverse talent as well. So you shouldn't expect your culture to change through accumulating diverse people. That's just window dressing. That's just window shopping. People will very quickly sniff out whether or not your culture is what you claimed it was um, through your external branding. So you have to have both. You have to do that visibly showing to the market that you're willing to change, but then also work on the mechanics internally doing the change. And to any organizations that have only just, you know, put a rainbow banner up or changed their logo for Pride Month and that's it, and you haven't done anything internally to, to look at the impact of your policies and procedures on the LGBTQ plus community, then that's, that's a lost cause. You know, I've personally gone through surrogacy, gone through adoption. So look at your family policies. You know, does my family set up, is my family set up covered in your, um, in your policies? You know, so if I want to go and look in the background as an employee at your organization, how would I be covered under surrogacy? Does the word surrogacy even show up in your adoption leave, family planning and what have you? That's just one example of something that um, affects the LGBTQ plus community in particular, um, as well as other couples, um, as an example. So there's a lot of things that you could do in the background to look at the wording of your policies, but then also your outreach, um, you know, your outreach initiatives. Do you engage and partner with LGBTQ plus community groups? Do you offer apprenticeship opportunities through LGBTQ plus youth groups? You know, there's so many different ways you, uh, an organization could be engaging locally with um, the LGBTQ plus community that then means there is some gusto behind that, um, you know, that rainbow banner. And she, a lot of companies are beginning to collaborate with AFPI UK, some for the very first time. Do you have any advice um, for uh, people working at companies on how they can be a good ally to someone coming into the organisation? Yes, uh, it's actually going to tie into what Mark has said. Be open and honest and at the same time respectful. Um, 
there is a lot that you as an individual can learn um, from someone from a diverse background from yours. The advice would be, you know, don't see it as a challenge or an affront to who you are. This is at the end of the day is something that is going to make society a better place for everyone. So if you are just at the start of, you know, either developing a diversity and inclusion strategy in your company, or if your team is starting to be more diverse, take that as a good sign. It's something that you would down the line be thankful for. We have seen that diverse teams generate, drive innovation more, they generate more results, um, the financial uh, numbers for companies that are more diverse are higher when you compare that to when you compare them to companies that are not as as diverse. So it's it's all um for the better of society. So yes, be willing to learn. Like come with an open mind. Um, it is okay to ask questions, but bear in mind that you have to be respectful while asking those questions. Um. And also reach out to people tend to see, you know, diversity and inclusion as um, something only done by like the HR team or the people's team in their companies. There are resources available for you. If you do reach out and ask for help, there is help. Um, there are organizations like Equal Engineers, Inter-Engineering, AFE, that have gone through these phases and are well equipped with assisting you in you know, transitioning into a more inclusive workplace. Chi and Mark, thank you very much for your insights today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our season one guests and to so many listeners for tuning in to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. We've covered a lot already, but with years still to go before Tempest enters service, this is a story that's just getting started. To keep up with the latest developments from the Team Tempest partners, keep following us on Twitter at Team Tempest UK. 